right. Please join me in prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts for God's Word. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for, even in the midst of a sort of snowstorm, you uh, have guided us here to gather together a holy convocation, your holy people, to devote ourselves to that sacred work of worship, of exalting of exalting your name, of proclaiming the kingdom of your Son, and uh, being equipped for the work of the ministry. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, give us wisdom, especially with a text like this, and to help us understand it and apply it, and to see the growth which only your Spirit can give. So with that, we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles up to the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter. Spent a couple weeks away in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. And, of course, we established its connection with a passage like this. If you have a New American Standard Bible, the heading in our passage today in 2 Peter, chapter 3, is the coming day of the Lord. We've covered... The mockery of men, we have covered God's faithfulness to judge, we have covered His power to also save in the midst of that. And then we come now to verse 10, which discusses the day of the Lord itself, and of course that judgment culminating into the establishment and inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. So this is all pretty exciting stuff, I think, but as is characteristic of both First and Second Peter, there are a number of very difficult passages, and so it is beneficial to take our time going through these and to really understand them. There's no shortage of disagreement. There's no shortage of controversy. You know, when we talk about things like the Millennial Kingdom, we often described it as an unprecedented time of 1,000 years of peace in which Christians love to disagree about and fight over. So, as ironic as that is, we desire within our own body to be unified um, on texts like these. But it begins with the day of the Lord, so a very important theme in Scripture. So please follow along with me as I read. I will get through, uh, read through verses uh, 10 through 13, and we will cover uh, by itself today only verse 10. But just in keeping with the theme and the context, please follow along with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in, in which righteousness dwells. So we kind of have a sudden and cataclysmic beginning to this passage and more toward the end. We have a light at the end of the tunnel, which we are assured by Peter is not an oncoming freight train. It is one that is filled with hope, filled with goodness, filled with God's very presence and his very righteousness. So we will go through verse 10 today. 
We definitely live in an age, I think, no doubt, of certain Christianisms, right? Certain sayings that we like to throw around the church, right? especially when we get together. And I would say, especially in the last perhaps few or several decades, one, one has emerged. And it's called this, it's all going to burn. That very saying is drawn from this passage in our study today. Of course, the title of this sermon is The Day of the Lord. It's all going to burn. Or is it? That's the question, of course, is what does Peter mean by burn? But we throw this phrase around, often in a pessimistic way. Now, in some ways, it's all going to burn can be a noble saying. It can be a safeguard against materialism. We guard our hearts against you know, the, the, the accumulation of, of too much wealth that we think may end up corrupting our hearts. So we say it's all going to burn, so we, so we think, okay, that will keep me from an inordinate um, commitment to accumulating all kinds of material goods. That's a good thing. On the other hand, I'm generalizing here, of course, it can be an excuse to withdraw. We say it's all going to burn. So, of course, why then try to be a light, salt and light to this society to improve the various social structures in this world. What we see here, again, is that sinking ship mentality that often accompanies a saying like this. But what ends up happening, unfortunately, is it truncates our view of redemption. We think of the gospel in terms of this and only this, save as many souls as possible, but do not expect God's kingdom being made manifest anywhere outside of the church. That's a very important line of thinking today. Do not expect God's kingdom being made manifest anywhere that is outside of the church because it's all going to burn. Also, this can provide a deeper excuse as well, simply on the economic level. It's all going to burn, so why try? I won't work too hard. I won't try to be industrious and creative or use the wealth that God has blessed me with to leave an inheritance for my children or to bless others abundantly. It's all going to burn anyway, so why try? And I would certainly hope that a text like this, and I think properly interpreted, will do just this, is flip our view around. It will make us optimistic. We will not give the excuse of it's all going to burn. Especially when we see what it is that is burning. So we've been hinting at this for a while now, we've finally come to the phrase itself. Very huge theme in the book of 2 Peter, and I would really say uh, by the apostles at large in the New Testament. They're all looking forward to what is called the day of the Lord, and that is one of the things we want to understand. Because in our study of theology, this theme of the day of the Lord is one of the most intriguing yet challenging themes in all of Scripture. And there are a variety of ways of understanding it, depending on what pastor you listen to, depending on what Bible study you attend, depending on what commentaries or prophecy conferences you're attending. The day of the Lord can be understood in many different ways. And I think understood simply, the day of the Lord could be understood as the Lord arriving, coming, being present in a special way both to judge and deliver. It typically can last a few years, but it typically is a, a season of time that is warned about. And when that time runs out, the Lord shows up in a special way both to judge and deliver. And depending on the context, this judging and deliverance can be toward the nations, it can be toward uh, a group of people, even individuals, it can be toward delivering his people. 
judging, judging his people and even delivering a remnant. We see that in the life of Israel and Judah. So depending on its context, it can point to many things. That's one of the reasons that makes this so difficult, in fact, is because when we look at the day of the Lord, we are not isolating it to one event. It has happened many times throughout history, and I think even in our own time continues to happen. It's a repeatable event. And so that is what we must discern here in 2 Peter chapter 3. That's the challenge of this morning and even in the ensuing weeks as we round out our study of 2 Peter. What day of the Lord is he referring to? And of course, what this day of the Lord entails depends a lot on your eschatological or end-time paradigm. We all, have a, we all have a lens, right? We all have a paradigm through which we view so-called end-times events. Now, we reviewed these before, but I think it will help if we do so one more time, simply because there are so many grids for interpretation. And again, if it helps you guys later on, I'll try to polish these notes even more and get them on for your own edification, because there's tons of texts, there's tons of things that we need to peel back and explore to understand this uh, in its fullness. So here's the first view. I'd say this is the most popular view today. It's the more dispensational, premillennial slash pre-tribulational view holds that this verse, verse 10 specifically, is describing the end of the universe. And the events go thusly, more or less. At any day, at any day, Jesus Christ will return to rapture the church away. Poof, we're gone. And after that, we'll follow the seven-year tribulation. Seven years of hell on earth. Jesus will return at his second coming at the end of this seven years, and then he will rule bodily on earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years, during which Satan, or the dragon, will be bound. After those 1,000 years, Satan will then be released and go out to deceive the nations. And then, according to the text, which is Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, God will then rain fire down on Satan and his minions. And then after this, as Revelation describes, is the new heavens and new earth. The very same thing, I am convinced, that Peter is describing in this passage. They're describing the same thing, essentially. And since this is in connection with what appears to be in 2 Peter a great cosmic wildfire, naturally the, the conclusion would be that this fire is the end of the universe as we know it. So after this great judgment upon uh, Satan now, now unbound to deceive the nations after that judgment comes upon him, then will commence the new heaven and new earth, the previous universe, the previous creation being eradicated. Then there's the amillennial view. You could maybe call this the amillennial-ish view. Also holds, by and large, that this event is also the burning up of the universe, but with a slightly different twist. Amillennialists believe Christ is reigning now. We are essentially in the millennium, that the entire church age is the millennium, not a literal thousand years, but a long period of time that denotes the entire church age. I'm sure several of us in here um, hold that view. And then, of course, at an unannounced time, Christ will return bodily, and then, of course, ushering in the eternal state. So amillennialism would essentially view this cosmic fire as occurring more or less at the same time as the second coming of Christ. So notice the difference between that and the more dispensational view. There's the second coming, thousand years of peace, and then this great cosmic fire. The view that I am presenting this morning in conjunction with what I've been preaching before 
all along is that the day of the Lord is not at all speaking of the destruction of the universe as a whole. So consistent with what has already been presented and what we've been leading up to here, I believe this is simply speaking of the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is, viewed through the lens of Scripture, the fall of the entire old Judaic and creation order, which then is the catalyst for ushering in the new heavens and new earth. It's curious to see if anyone else held this view that you know, was old school, because some modern scholars do. Turns out John Owen himself also subscribed to this view. If you don't know who John Owen is, he's the coolest Puritan, so John Owen said it. On this foundation, he says, I affirm that the heaven and earth here intended in this prophecy of Peter, the coming of the Lord, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, mentioned in the destruction of the heaven and earth, do all of them relate, not to the last and final judgment of the world, but to that utter desolation and destruction that was to be made of the Judaical church and state, which, of course, end quote, was characteristic of the old creation order, that which was destined to basically be subdued by the advancing kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so, in light of that, for some of you, you're gonna, you know, you're going to be shaking your head in agreement. For some of you, this is going to be very new. This is where we are finally able to unpack this in significant detail. So this might be new, but I would also like to encourage you as well that as daunting as it may seem in the beginning, think, think of what happened. So, so most of you at some point came to be familiarized with the doctrines of grace, a.k.a. Calvinism. And maybe when you first encountered Calvinistic teaching, you were just, you were so angry at it because the first thing it attacked was your sacred free will, right? You, it, it seemed to, that you were, Calvinism meant that you were a robot, that you had no choice, that God was forcing himself upon you. And yet, as we came to familiarize ourselves with the doctrines of grace, we found out, oh wow, God really is sovereign. He is in charge of his universe, as he ought to be. And if he is that, then he's in charge of the salvation of men's souls. And he is guiding history to an appointed consummation in which he will make all things new. That is, God can do what he wants. Salvation is of the Lord, and who are we as the clay to tell the potter what he ought to do and what he ought not to do? So we found out upon further study that there were benefits of it. There were particular byproducts that, were, that, that, caused to, uh, that, that basically blessed us, blessed us immensely, gave us assurance knowing that once God made us his sheep, he wasn't going to unmake us his sheep. Little teaching called perseverance, little teaching called election. So in the same way, if we understand this not as a future destruction of the universe on a wholesale scale but as a past historical triumphant act of Jesus Christ, I believe it presents with a, for us a much brighter future, one in which we can be confident and optimistic regarding the advance, the inevitable advancing of the gospel and of Christ's kingdom and dominion. Now, now tell me, how does that on any scale sound like a bad thing? I think the question is this, and is, and, and is partially answered by a text like this, is, uh, is Christ going to conquer in spite of his church, or is he going to conquer through his church? And I would say the latter is true. He is going to grow his people. He is going to advance his kingdom. And he is going to use the body of Christ to do it. And yes, sometimes in spite of us, but ultimately 
as the gospel gains ground and the nations are discipled, we will see this come to fruition and, and, and be able to say very clearly and very truly that the Lord Jesus Christ has done this through His people. He has used us as His humble instruments of grace to bring the light and truth and knowledge of His death and resurrection and kingdom to bear upon the nations. And of course, we would say amen to that. That's a, that's a good thing. Sign me up. I want to be a part of that. See how far we removed already from it's all going to burn? Sure, something's going to burn, but what? But let's first talk about the day of the Lord. And like I said, I believe this is speaking of a local judgment, namely Jerusalem's doom in A.D. 70. But let's talk about the day of the Lord, because it shows up all over Scripture. I think even sometimes when it's not even mentioned. Like you could call the judgment upon the earth via the flood as a day of the Lord. right? You could say that Sodom and Gomorrah was a day of the Lord. I think you could even say in some sense the, the, the downfall of the Third Reich as a day of the Lord. And eventually, we will see a day of the Lord in the downfall of communism and cultural Marxism. I mean, again, everything that arrays itself against the knowledge of God and the kingdom of its Son will have its day of the Lord. Everything and everyone will have its day of the Lord. Every person, every institution, everything will have its day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord plays a prominent theme, especially when it concerns Old Testament prophecy dealing with the downfall of what we understand is Israel, Judah, even, even the kingdoms that end up assaulting it, such as Babylon. We read the day of the Lord concerning Edom, Persia. All these kingdoms will have their day. So listen to Isaiah 13.6. He says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So the prophet Isaiah, of course, <laughs> left his mark on Judah for sure. He was constantly warning them to repent, constantly warning them, hey, judgment is coming if you do not put away your apostate behavior. If you do not repent and turn to the Lord, time will eventually run out. Sure, a remnant will be saved, but Judah itself will be judged and they will be spewed out from the land. And it will be a destroying act from God Himself. Same chapter of Isaiah, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. So it's pretty terrifying language. Very vivid, very serious, and very certain. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Lamentations 2.22. You called as in the day of an appointed feast, my terrors on every side, and there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. We don't want the Lord to be our enemy. Ezekiel. Now notice all these prophets are saying the same thing, right? They are of one accord. Their message is not contradictory. It is, it is a unified one. And they're all saying the same thing. Judah, repent. Israel, repent. The day of the Lord is coming and He will not spare. Ezekiel 13.5, you have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. Listen to Ezekiel 30, verse 3, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations, right? So there was, a, there was sort of this prophetic clock as the Spirit spoke through the prophets. It's near, right? It is at hand. Peter is using the same language. 
right? Calls it the last days. The day of the Lord is near. It's upon you. It could come at any time. And of course, the other apostolic writers of the New Testament say the same thing. Consider also Joel. Joel's a big one because Joel's prophecies actually spill over into the New Testament. And Joel was written between about 835 and 800 BC. So this was even before uh, Israel's fall to the Assyrian Empire. And as Joel predicts, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So same thing. Joel 2.1, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Now there's an important translation issue when it comes to the, 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 the English translation of land. Sometimes you'll see the whole earth, the whole land. When it's in the context of Israel, it doesn't mean the entire globe. It simply speaks of the land, the land, the land of Israel. So when it says the entire land, yes, this judgment, this day of the Lord will affect the land in its entirety. In Joel 2.30, we see this apocalyptic language come to bear. It says, in in this context of the day of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Now, here's the really important one, Joel 2.31, because when, when Peter preaches, and I think this is even in Matthew 24, they basically use this very verse to predict the eventual fall of Jerusalem. The day of the Lord is near, right? It'll come in this generation. Therefore, repent now. So Joel 2.31 says this, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now this is very important for understanding prophecy. It uses apocalyptic language. Now apocalyptic language is, is ling- language that is very colorful, very vivid, often exaggerated to depict the severity of judgment. So are we literally saying that the moon is going to turn into blood, right? Even a blood moon is not red per se. At at best, it's a very pale pink. But the Lord's Lord's point here is taken. It's going to be a terrible day. It's going to be horrific and catastrophic. And he says all these things will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Got a lot of that. It's in, it's in Amos as well. Written between 760 and 753 B.C. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. So you see, depending on where you stand with God, the day of the Lord may be light, but it may be darkness. And for those of them who were indulging in idolatry and forsaking the law and forsaking the Lord Himself, it was darkness for them. And of course, Paul of the Thessalonians warns them of the same thing, right? A thief in the night, the day of the Lord is coming, and there will be darkness for those who do not believe. In Amos 5.20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? We read the same thing in Obadiah 8.48 to 8.40 B.C. and Zephaniah. 635 to 625 B.C. So Zephaniah writes in the context after the Assyrians plunder Israel and of course a few years before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar with his Chaldean army come in and simply sack Jerusalem and raid the temple. So this is a consistent warning throughout the Old Testament and its attention is, is, is most prominently on 
Israel and Judah. Listen to what Zephaniah says. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly, and yes, in about a few decades. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. Zephaniah 1.18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth or land will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. So the Lord isn't joking. He is serious with His warnings. Here's Zephaniah as well. 2.3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. See, so there's still hope for those who who love God. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Didn't we talk about that last couple of Lord day, Lord's days, right? What is, how do we counteract pride, hypocrisy, and legalism? Through humility. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now listen, a final warning from Malachi before those 400 years of prophetic silence. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, probably John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So what we can establish there very firmly, okay, undeniably, is that there is going to be another day of the Lord on the horizon, not just the one that sent Israel and Judah into exile. There is another one coming up that is going to send a future generation uh, into some form of exile, or they're going to receive uh, judgment from the Lord. So he says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Right? We see that fulfilled in Luke 1.17. Spoken of John the Baptist, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, then we get into the New Testament. Okay, hopefully we're following along very carefully. This all matters. When we get into the New Testament, of course, we've already seen uh, this quotation from Joel 2.31. Peter preaches in Acts 2.20. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So he's saying, the things that befell Israel by the mouth of Joel will now befall you, this generation, in perfect consistency with what the Lord Jesus himself spoke of in Matthew 24. We also read this day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. It might be a different day of the Lord. There is a day of the Lord that is used with the future resurrection. However, there's still one in sight. Again, we have more days of the Lord to experience. But in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says this, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So similar language to Peter. It seems like the Thessalonians aren't quite understanding it. So in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says this, reminding them not to be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So there were those masquerading, perhaps pretending to be Paul and sending confusing messages to the Thessalonian church regarding the day of the Lord. So Paul says this, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So in Paul's mind, it has not arrived yet. Certain things had to take place before that actually happened. And then, of course, we come to Peter. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, what last days? The last days leading up to the day of the Lord. And that's where we are now. So there's a day of the Lord is understood 
in the Old Testament, and there's a day of the Lord predicted also for this first generation of New Testament, New Covenant believers that, of course, in like manner to Israel, are being seduced away from the purity of the gospel. And we'll get to more detail in that, hopefully, today. But here we are in Second Peter, where then he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the Lord, or sorry, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So here we are, continuing in our argument that this speaks of a, of a local judgment. Previous days of the Lord spoke mostly of a national slash local judgment, and they happened. So that's what I believe is best understood. But I'll give you guys four initial arguments for this view. First, and I think most significantly perhaps, the view that this is judgment on Jerusalem comports best with the immediate context. Peter is talking about the coming of the Lord and in the previous preceding verses talking about the judgment on the wicked and ungodly. Those scoffers, those mockers that were present among the first century church. So he's talking about the coming of the Lord in light of their judgment. Therefore, it makes little sense for Peter to then suddenly shift to the end of the universe. Something that is future even to us. Context is king. Secondly, as Peter says down at the end of this verse, and the earth and its works will be burned up. One of, the, one of the things we talked about was that burned up actually means to be discovered or made clear, to be put in plain view. So if it does indeed mean that, if it means literally that the whole universe is going to burn, be burned up, what else is left to discover of it? Remember, Peter is talking about the uncovering or the discovery of the, uh, of the old creation, the old order, not the discovery of the new heavens and new earth. So if it's all annihilated, what else is there to see or notice? Maybe that's grasping at straws, but I don't think so. Thirdly, Peter's words comport with the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. He uses that same, that same cosmic language. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 24, remember... Concerning the return of Christ in judgment, he says, but immediately, verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, in much prophetic Old Testament literature, stars falling from the sky refers to the removal of kings and, and leadership, right? And of course, if the stars literally fell from the sky, the earth would be obliterated. So we understand Jesus here as quoting the Old Testament to refer to a, a sudden, apocalyptic, catastrophic, and yet local event. Peter uses the same thing. Remember, they're not going to contradict each other. You could say that Peter is using this language on purpose. Fourthly, Peter draws, and this connects with Matthew 24, draws on Old Testament apocalyptic imagery and language that utilizes, listen to this, universal, cosmic, and cataclysmic language to describe a local judgment. So Peter isn't doing anything novel here. Taking, taking this kind of interpretation is in no sense a departure from the general pattern of Old Testament prophetic and apocalyptic language. So keep those four things in mind when approaching a text like this. So, going on in our text, Peter notes 
four specific things about the day of the Lord. And the first is this, is that it is going to come like a thief. That's what he's saying. And this warning has been given elsewhere from Paul and even to a degree from Jesus. It'll come like a thief. That is, those mockers and scoffers are are going to experience it in an unexpected way. Remember, they're, they're going to be preaching peace and safety all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem. All the way until the armies of Rome surround the city. They are going to be preaching peace and safety. And historically, that's the very thing that happened. They were counting on a deliverer. And get this, they were counting on a Messiah for God to send a Messiah to deliver them from the hordes of Rome. It's pretty sad and ironic if you ask me. But it comes like a thief when they do not expect it. Just like a a thief in the night. And this thief will plunder you. This thief will take you by surprise. This thief will tie you up and take everything you have. And that is essentially what the Jews in Jerusalem went through. They were plundered. They lost everything. Came like a thief. And of course, Paul encourages the Thessalonians that right, they are not of the night. This day will not overtake you like a thief if the context there is this event here. We are not to be taken by surprise. Right? We, are to be, we are to understand, even if we don't know the, the, day, the exact day and the hour in which the Lord is, is, is doing everything, we still are of the day. What we do recognize is that He is working, that He is judging, that He is saving, that He is doing all of those things according to His own perfect sovereign will, and that we, of course, are partners in that very work. Though we contribute nothing, we are intimately involved. So we are not overtaken like a thief. Christians in the first century expected this very thing to happen, and it happened. But to those, from the perspective of unbelief, it didn't happen. Remember, we talked about those people as being stupid on purpose. It didn't happen in a a way that they expected. And yet... Sudden destruction came upon them just like the days of Noah. As for believers, Jesus is now the master of the house. He has broken in, bound the strong man, and has freed us through His mighty gospel. So in a sense, we've been rescued by the thief, not destroyed by Him. So that's the first thing. It's unexpected. comes like a thief. And then here's where the language gets really interesting says it will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now on one hand we can kind of parse this out, but on the other hand we want to we want to be able to understand it as a whole. He talks about basically the passing away of the heavens and then the earth and its works bur- being burnt up. So something is happen- happening here to the heavens and the earth. So of course what, what, what does he mean when he says heavens and the earth? I think that's one question that has to be answered. The other thing, of course, is what does it mean to pass away and what does it mean to be burned up? So let's, let's start here. In which the heavens will pass away with the roar. So let's look at that, let's look at that verb there. It's going to pass away. Whatever these heavens are in question, it will pass away. That means to become undone or to become void, to be made nothing, to become vain, right? Basically unusable. It will be obsolete. So we know what's going to happen to it. 
So when he says heaven and earth in this passage, what does he mean? So let's look at this. Okay, again, consistent with what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, he's using, he's using Old Testament imagery. Okay, Old Testament, Old Testament imagery. So don't forget that part. Okay, this is the first thing we've got to point out. Is that the passing away of heaven and the burning up or discovery of earth is used in the Old Testament to describe the passing away, don't miss this, the passing away of either a political or a religious order. So like I said, when the Old Testament uses the exact same language, it is not a global or universe-wide meltdown, right? The, the, the destruction of the universe is not in view here, hardly. So if we're, if we're consistent with the Old Testament usage of it, it's describing the passing away of either a political or a religious order. So, here in 2 Peter, he does the same thing. He's describing the end of the old creation order. And I would say both politics and religion are involved. So let's look at some of these passages. There may be some overlap. Some of these we may have gone over before. But in Isaiah 13, again, apocalyptic language for a local judgment, right? Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. We've read that. But then you go down to verse 10, he says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. So what have we said? Often, stars and heavenly bodies refer to kings or rulers of some sort. Those in charge. Those who are running things. Then he goes on in verse 10, The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. So very similar language to Matthew 24, which tells us that the same thing is happening. And then you go down. There's more cosmic language being used in verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. It sounds like a global judgment, but in context, it's a local one. And yet, the heavens are trembling. It's like the sky is crumbling. And the earth will be shaken from its place. I mean, it's like we almost have in our mind this worldwide earthquake. And everything's coming apart at the seams. But this is vivid language to describe the severity of a local judgment. The same language that Peter uses and the same language that Jesus uses. And we read, it, we read similar language in Psalm 18. The whole passage is 7 through 15. But it says this, When the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling. It makes it sound like mountains are just going to fall down, like we're going to have some Mount St. Helens type of event or Krakatoa event. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Listen to this, verse 9 of Psalm 18. He bowed the heavens also, and came down with thick darkness under his feet. So think of the imagery that conjures up. Is that what's really happening? Are we to think that the entire Virgo supercluster is somehow bending in place? Or is it vivid language simply used to describe something local to emphasize the power of God so that we fear Him? I would say the second. Listen further on, verse 13. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows. Oh, now the Lord is an archer. He's up in heaven and He's got His, 
he got, he's got his bow and his quiver, and he's taking out his heavenly arrows and scattered them and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. See, it's just apocalyptic language consistent throughout the Scriptures. Consider Nahum as well. Nahum chapter 1, written between 663 and 612. And this, the context, listen to the context. It's judgment on Assyria and comfort for Judah. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Wow, the hills dissolve like a tablet of Alka-Seltzer plus cold medicine in water. They're just fizzing away. Or is it meant for a different purpose? And listen to that, to, by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it, it sounds like everyone is just going to be poof, gone. And yet it's a local judgment. I think one, one of the more significant ones is this one in Zephaniah. 1.14 and then, of course, 118. Uh, let's go to 118. We've already read 114, but neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And listen to this. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. What does that sound like? That there's going to be a complete meltdown of planet earth. But it's a local judgment. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Remember, all means all, and that's all all means. Got to be consistent, right? All means all, all the time. And we would think that is the literal end of the entire earth. But then you go down to Zephaniah 3.12, and I am indebted to uh, Gary DeMar for pointing this out. There is redemption. Wait a minute, the earth has just been liquidated. But in Zephaniah 3.12, we read this, But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. How do we have a remnant if the entire globe is completely torn apart and burnt to smithereens? Again, that's not, it's, it's not the point. We are supposed to read in this the severity of judgment. Right? We, are not, we are not to think lightly of the presence of the Lord. This cataclysmic apocalyptic language, again, is so that we may fear the Lord, that we may take Him seriously. But it is going to be a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God, to be on the receiving end of His wrath rather than His grace and mercy. So there's, that, there's a timely warning for us today because the wrath of God still abides on the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ. But here we have this remnant. So we have to take it something other than hyper-literal. Hyper-literally. So going on, this passing away, Peter says it will pass away with a roar. So there is noise. This roar is a rushing sound, a crash, something again loud and sudden and, and unexpected. Right? Something that grabs your attention. Again, thunder is often a sound that accompanies the, the judgment of God. When you read 1 Samuel 2.10, Job 49, Isaiah 29.6, Isaiah 33.3, and Joel 3.16, they all talk about this, this thundering judgment, this thundering presence of God. 
This roar can also describe, interestingly enough, thinking of this in the context of this Roman, this Roman invasion, this Roman sacking of Jerusalem, this roar can describe the sound of a whistling arrow or even a spear parting the air, can even describe a crackling fire, all things characteristic of, an, of, of, of a Roman invasion. I mean, the city burned for a long time. Everything, it was, it was in a sense, a complete meltdown. And the temple was gone. So no matter what Peter may have specifically in mind here, every description is characteristic of the roar of battle and fiery destruction. So we can understand that. It's definitely describing the destruction and, and undoing of something. And what we can also say for sure is that whatever event is going on here, it is unmistakable and memorable. Such, so profound was the judgment on Jerusalem, it's, it's in what we would consider secular history books. Other historians write about it. We don't just... We don't just have its depiction in Holy Scripture. It was an unmistakable, memorable event. And that's how the judgment of God should be. We should remember and be warned from those who continue to rebel and continue to deny the promises of God. So let's go on in this text. We've tried, we've tried to establish that this is just vivid language for what is, what is the pattern of a local judgment? And then he says this, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So we, we know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that's the first one, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, that's the, that's the second one, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Okay. So we'll ask ourselves this question, what, what are these what are these elements? Okay? What are the elements in view here? So rather than, again, depending on who you listen to, some, some interpret this as the universe being burnt down to the atomic level. The very elements, right? Like hydrogen and, and iridium and osmium and helium and all the, the cool elements we played with in chemistry class and stuff like that. Down to the very atomic level, it's all going to be gone. But I think Peter's intent is quite different. So he uses a very important word in the New Testament. It's called stoicheia. Okay. Stoicheia refers to, the, refers to the building blocks of things, the basic parts, right? So the, the right, elementary things. Literally, it's things that are stacked in a row. Now, notice the significance of that picture. Things stacked in a row. Not things that you stack up, but things that are, 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 are horizontal only. And so when, it, when this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it is used in reference to Christians returning or being tempted to return to some kind of bondage to the law. And we understand that in Christ, we are, we are free from the curse of the law. We are, we are no longer under the law, even though we understand some continuity from old to new concerning the commandments of God. But certain things are clearly obsolete. Certain things have clearly been done away with. And this word turns up in some very interesting places. It turns up in Paul to the Galatians. So mark this, Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 and verses 9. So what is, he, what is he doing to, what is he warning the Galatians against? Returning to certain, certain prescriptions from the Mosaic law that have clearly been, that have clearly passed away. Returning to certain things where the Judaizers are saying, you cannot be justified unless you return to these things, right? Justification does not come purely by grace through faith. You must add 
certain works of the law to these things to truly be saved. Same challenge they, they faced in Acts 15.10, which culminated in the Jerusalem Council. But listen to this. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The stoicheia, right? But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? One of those weak and worthless elemental things was circumcision. It's like if you're going to be circumcised, you better just go and return to the law wholesale. Keep everything. You're in bondage voluntarily. The Colossians were facing the same challenge. Now, we've already established that in the first century church, the Judaizers were all over the Roman Empire. In Colossians 2, verse 8 and verses 20 and 21, Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. That word taking captive means to, gives the image of being carried off as a POW. Don't let that happen, he says. According to the tradition of men, according to the stoicheia, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So one thing we can establish from this text immediately is that whatever these stoicheia are, they stand in direct opposition to Christ. They are not according to Christ. We would say, based on what Peter is describing, they are of the old order. They are of that which is passing away and obsolete. We can delineate at least that much from these texts. So he says this in verse 20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? It's a form of bondage. Why are you submitting yourself to that rather than Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and liberty? Same thing, right? Bondage to a perverse understanding and application of the Old Covenant. Hebrews 5.12, this is interesting. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the stoicheia, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, of course, Hebrews was written to Jews, Christian Jews, who, have, who had basically joined the New Covenant community and they kept going back to the Old Covenant ways that were made obsolete in Christ. And the warnings there are clear, right? Hebrews is a warning letter, among other things, indicating that that whole system is going to be brought down, right? He says, keep gathering together, especially as you see the day drawing near. What day could he possibly be talking about? The day of the Lord in which he destroys the temple and the whole Judaic enterprise. He's saying, don't go back to that. Do not be a part of that order that is destined to fall, right? It's, it's going to disappear. It's old and obsolete. It's getting ready to, to disappear for good. That's all in reference to the downfall of Jerusalem. And so there's some good references to what, Peter is, to what I believe Peter is talking about. So we can't unpack all of these verses uh, in, in great depth, but what we should understand at the very least is that Christians were being seduced back into bondage by a perverse application of the Old Covenant, especially things made obsolete by Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection, and His kingship. And false teachers are coming along saying, you, that is not enough. You can't be truly righteous in Christ unless you go back to practicing these things. See, it's a denial of Christ's sufficiency. 
And so this was the whole mindset of apostate Judaism and the Judaizers whose presence in the first century church was an ongoing affliction and pitfall. And so all of these things warn about that. They warn severely. And so concerning the stoicheia, concerning also the earth, right? we find that the earth and its works will be burned up. So let's return to some Old Testament references on this. Same thing, context, local judgment, Isaiah 24, 19. The earth, or the land, is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaking violently. Now again, are we to imagine that God is taking planet earth and doing this to it? No, I don't think so. There may be earthquakes, but we do understand that the point is God's judgment. So again, what's the context here? And I think we're given a clue. In verse 5 of Isaiah 24, the earth, probably better translated land, is also polluted by its inhabitants. Why? For they have transgressed laws, violated statues, broke the everlasting covenant. So we know in what context the earth is being split through, but it's not as if the, the earth is being broken apart like a giant jawbreaker. No, it's, it's judgment. Then, of course, regarding heaven, Isaiah 34, 4, judgment against the nations. L- listen to this. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And their hosts will also wither away. Did that actually happen in history? No, it didn't. It's apocalyptic prophetic imagery indicating the judgment of God upon nations. And then one more from Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. So it sounds like everything, once again, is going to be destroyed, but then take a second look. What is the context of Isaiah 51? The judgment on Jerusalem, and then the return from the Babylonian exile. That's what it's saying, and yet the, the imagery is cosmic, universal, vivid, and catastrophic. That is what is vanishing. Again, earth and heaven. Earth and heaven are passing away. So how do, how do we understand this? Of course, we also want to understand what this, what this burning away means. So keep that in mind. Because we know, we, know we know it's going to happen. It's going to be burned away. So here's what we're getting to next. Heaven and earth, but earth specifically. And its works will be burned up. Okay? This is the key. And we understand that we've translated this not so much as fire, but that it will be discovered or found out or uncovered. So the works of the earth will be uncovered. It will be, whatever it is that's going on, something is going to be made crystal clear. So let's listen to John Owen on this once again. Let others mock at the threats of Christ's coming. He will come. He will not tarry. And then the heavens and earth, what God Himself planted, the sun, moon, and stars of the Judaical polity and church, the whole world of worship and worshipers, they stand out in their obstinacy against the, the Lord Christ shall be sensibly dissolved and destroyed. This we know shall be the end of these things, and that shortly. So, that's in terms of discovery. What it is that's being uncovered. What it it is that we are meant to see. Gene Green, another commentator on 2 Peter, summarizes it thusly, that this suggests a Judaical inquiry through which God will discover the deeds of humanity, that is the ungodly, and will execute His judgment 
on the basis of what he finds. Now, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old and New Testament, you have these, these, these acts, these inquiries going on. In Exodus 22, you have a thief, right? If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property, right? There's an inquiry, right? There's a discovery of what actually happened so that justice can be meted out. I think, that's, I think that much is, is pretty clear. In the prophecy against Babylon in Jeremiah 50, 24, I set a snare for you, and you were also were caught, O Babylon, while you yourself were not aware. You have been found and also seized because you have engaged in conflict with the Lord. See, so Babylon has been found out too, right? Think of even Pilate's inquiry against Jesus. I find no guilt in this man. The only thing we discover about Christ is that he's king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the righteous one. That is what is found out. But see the train of events here. When those in question are coming under this so-called fiery judgment by the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is there very uh, institution passing away with a roar, but the key here is that the very things they stood for, the very spiritual crimes they were committing amongst the church and in their rebellion against Jesus Christ, they cannot say we are in the clear because it's all burned away. So you can't say it's all going to burn and use that as a basis to excuse yourself or to think that God somehow missed out on knowing all the things you did. All those things will still be discovered. While they are burned away, it's perfectly clear. And what that means for these false teachers and these ungodly men that will face this judgment is imminent exposure. That is what is made clear. That's how we answer that question. What is it then that will be discovered in the passing away of heaven and the burning up of the earth? What is it that will be made, that discovered or made clear? So we see that false teachers were leading Christians astray, same thing happens today, especially with the immature, by sowing doubt regarding the return of Christ and judgment. So when this burning comes, it will be discovered that their teaching was false, right? So that satanic, Christ-defying, promise-denying rebellion will be clear to all with the complete and utter destruction of their entire system, which they linked to the temple. So again, as long as the temple was standing, as long as all of those activities were taking place, you could say that represented the stoicheia. All of those elements, all of those building blocks, that even while they pointed to Christ, where they missed out was that they did not see them as being fulfilled in Christ. And so they remained stoicheia. They only remained building blocks that you could stack in a row. But while they could point to Christ, they could not bring one to Him. Only the Gospel can do that. And so as they cling to that stoicheia, all of, those, all of those ceremonies, all of those forms, even their misplaced trust and their own security at the expense of denying Jesus His rightful place in their life as Lord, Savior, and King, they would face terrible judgment. They would face the complete and utter destruction of their system. So those building blocks then are everything consistent with that old system, right? 
all of the forms, all of the rituals, all of the false beliefs, all of the apostasy, their very ministry, and you could even say the temple itself, all of the instruments in the temple. You think about everything that got undermined and destroyed and obsolete and taken out of the way. That is the building blocks to which Peter is referring because they all link back to that, that apostate Judaic legalism that only served to put Christians in bondage. And so, of course, that is what we can see as a burning away. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what we say, all its works, see? All the things that they have done, all the works that they have accomplished will be burned up. It will be seen as worthless. The utter destruction of their system and even the attitudes characteristic of it. Hypocrisy, legalism, and pride, as we discussed the last couple of weeks. But again, as long as the temple was standing, religious apostates had credibility, and it appeared that God was on their side. And now, now when this comes to pass in terror, they and all that they have done will stand naked before God and all creation. And of course, they will want to hide. Listen to Isaiah 2.19, talking about this very thing. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Revelation 6, 14-17. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it, is warmed, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then listen to what they said. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide, hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So this is, this is going to be the, the fear of those who are in the city. They're, they're going to want to hide themselves. They're, they would rather have rocks fall on them than face the wrath of Jesus Christ. But this is the burning away, and this is their reaction to that judgment. Just, why can't I hide myself from this? But they recognize, who is able to stand? Certainly no one, right? And we find that this is still at work today. Ephesians 5.12, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. See, we still use the gospel to expose, to shine a light on the truth of things. When we preach the gospel, we expose all that is consistent, all that is devoted to the old and passing creation order. We expose it for the fraud it is. We expose it in all of its powerlessness, right? In all of its human, empty human wisdom. In all of its self-righteousness, we do the same thing. So what was burning continues to be burnt as the Lord does His work through His gospel. Right? When we preach the gospel, there is a discovery. Right? As Jeremy was saying earlier, you just let people preach at you and their worldview takes form. That is a discovery. Right? That is a clarifying of where people stand. And so all that's happening is this old order is being burnt away and this is all consistent with the warning that the writer of Hebrews gives. 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So his keeping is with God's covenantal purposes. The old is growing obsolete and fades away to give way to the new covenant and hence the new creation, which is what we will talk about next time. So the challenge of the church is clear, Right? Regarding not only that event, but even our task today, Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The warning, 
don't fail to enter his rest because of unbelief. But before we close, I I just wanted to share some interesting insight with you because Peter here in verse 10, look at the verse again. It says that the heavens will pass away with the roar. We We would say that the heavens are those things and earth are those things which facilitate the stoicheia, which as long as those are in place, right, this old order continues. Now listen to what Peter Lightheart says. It's very interesting insight. He says that Peter is describing in this the end of the old creation, and I quote, heaven and the stoicheia are thus a kind of barrier between God and the earth and its works, so that the removal of heaven, that is, think about a Noahic illustration, the firmament, right? The firmament, the sky above. Uh, so that the removal of heaven leaves the earth exposed. The wicked will be found out in their wickedness despite their apparent efforts to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. And therefore, he quotes Revelation six fifteen through 17 which we just did. But he says this, that the heavens here refers specifically to the firmament heavens, and therefore the removal of the firmament, so to speak, leads to the discovery of the earth. That is, in this case, the undoing, uh, this burning away of the old creation allows us to see it for what it is. It is God's witness as to what characterizes all that is old and all that arrays itself against Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, continuing in history today, it will all suffer the same fate lest it repents. And I would say, you will suffer the same fate lest you repent. Because this great discovery is still going on today through the proclamation of the gospel. And so as John Lightfoot concludes, the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole Jewish state is described as if the whole frame of the world were to be dissolved. Nor is it strange when God destroyed His habitation and city, places one so dear to Him, with so direful and sad and overthrow His own people whom He accounted of as much or more than the whole world beside, but so dreadful by so dreadful and amazing plagues. But they rejected their Messiah. Now, I do want to give a ray of hope, of course. And I think back to the words of Jesus. What would survive this great discovery? And it gives us insight to what he says. He says, heaven and earth may pass away, right? And I believe he's talking about this, this whole old order. That may all pass away, but guess what? My words will never pass away. Whatever Jesus taught us, the words of life and truth that He gives us transcend. They supersede. They outlive the entire old order. And they will go on into eternity. And they continue to minister to the church today. That's one amazing proof of the Gospel. Is that the Word of Christ continues today. Again, destroying fortresses, putting down rulers, subduing His enemies, and bringing life to dead men. They continue and we speak them forth with all power and boldness and wisdom. Again, what a privilege and joy it is to be a part of that, knowing that the words of the Lord spoken, spoken under that administration that would pass away, continue on and live in us today. So with that, we'll close by, uh, by reading Hebrews 12, 26 for, through 28. And again, I thank you for hanging with me. There was a lot to cover today, but God be praised, we got through it. <laughs> no part two. Hebrew tw- Hebrews 12, 26 through 28. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake 
not only the earth, but also the heavens. So same thing in view. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, the old creation. As of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The kingdom of God, the church, the new creation. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Right? At the end of that passage, for our God is a consuming fire. Never forget that. And as he continues to burn away or discover the old so we can see clearly all that it is, he burns away also because he's faithful to do so all the corruption that remains in his people because he would have us be holy as he is holy and as bright lights in this world preaching his kingdom with all boldness. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his words never will. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and faithfulness. Thank you for this passage and uh, so much to go through, but uh, thank you for getting us through it. Uh, we thank you for each one here. We thank you for um, faithful saints who are eager and hungry to hear your word. We even thank you, Lord, for the little crying babies, the, uh, the tiny voices among us, Lord, and we would pray for them too that those cries would eventually be shouts of joy. We thank you for um, your presence with us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your continual work in our church. We thank you, God, that in Christ you have brought down and are bringing down the old creation, that you are subduing your enemies even now, and that, Lord, even though your church can be weak and frail, that we can find our strength in you. We can find purpose. We can find our very identity in the Lord Jesus Christ our faithful Lord, our faithful shepherd, our true King. That we may exalt Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. That we would be able to confront the world in boldness, pleading, but also demanding that they worship the true King and that they love and trust Him. Lord, I pray that even a, a, a small verse like this, highly controversial, full of vivid imagery and lots of fire and destruction, would, it would appeal to our hearts that it is a precious work even that you are doing. That in doing this, you are making all things new rather than just destroying the old. You are bringing a new heavens and new earth and it is our joy to partake of that with you in our midst. So encourage us today as we continue our, our worship and song and uh, preparing our hearts for the partaking of the Lord's table. Thank you, Lord. You are good. You are faithful. And we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.